The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome my guest, Ms. Lonnie Malberg. She just happens to be vice president of the Beyond Pesticides Board, which is how I met her at the 33rd annual Beyond Pesticides Forum in Orlando, Florida. What I found so fascinating about Lonnie Malberg is that she grew up in a cattle ranching family, left the cattle ranch, and started to do some research on how she can manage weeds. And long story short, she's got a 1,200 herd cashmere goat business that travels around mostly 10 western states managing weeds She works with fire reduction, reseeding, watershed management, and land restoration, all because of these glorious goats. So Lonnie calls herself a gypsy goat herder, and we're going to find out all about it. Welcome. Thank you. So when we were at the Beyond Pesticides meeting, I had the good fortune of sharing a room with you. And you taught me about the course of your life, and I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about how you went from a college student studying weed science to having a 1,200 head goat herd, and am I using the terms correctly? Is it Would, would you call it a herd of goats? Yes, I call it a herd. A herd, okay, and so you've got these goats that are working so hard for you in a way that doesn't pollute our food and water. So how it happened was I was a cattle rancher and cattle and horses. I rode horses to do my work, ride and rope the range in the West. And then I went to college when I was 33 and got a degree in environmental restoration, botany, biology, and then went right into graduate school and got a master's degree in weed science. And at that time, no one had ever heard of it, and I hadn't either. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but it had a stipend, and I needed that to raise my two sons. So I took it, and I said, by the way, what do I get? And he said, a master's in weed science. I said, okay, never heard of it, but I'll take it. So that's how I got on that path. While I was in graduate school, I read in the literature how well goats eat weeds, and they are exactly opposite in diet preference to cattle and horses. Cattle and horses run the West here. So they're exactly opposite. They're a perfect complement all the weed problems, all the plants that horses and cattle don't eat that get out of control, that's goat's favorite food. So I applied that, and my knowledge of handling animals, the ability to handle animals, the ability to rope, like I roped a billy goat once at a Cadillac dealership right before he jumped on the car or through the plate glass window. I don't know where he was going to jump, but I roped him and I caught him before he jumped. And put those skills of knowing how to handle a lot of animals in any situation, out in all the weather, 12 months out of the year, all the weather, all the situations, and use their natural diet preference and their habits and their unique, very intelligent personality, put them to work. So that's how I got there. 
So you're working on your Master's of Science in Weed Science from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and you're there with a number of students who are also studying weed science, but they're taking a chemical approach. What was it that made you think of goats? Well, when I was in school, I was the only one, the only student not funded by a chemical company. I was the only one not funded by a chemical company, and I was the, quote, the poor kid. You know, I I hardly got any stipend, and I had to pay all my own books and fees and everything. But what took me on the path more than anything was when I got out with this graduate degree, I wanted to hold my values to me, and that was work outside, work with animals, and keep my children with me. And by the way, in graduate school, I ran another research project that had to do with sheep grazing, that where you were in a riparian area, very sensitive, and it was illegal to use any pesticides that worked there. So it was sheep grazing. And I took over that project, and I got my two sons hired on as temporary employees, and we built the fence that ran that entire project and took the data. So my sons were with me all through graduate school, and that's 11 and 12 years old when we started that. And then they were 13 and 14 when I got out, and we, the three of us together, started this business. So do you think it was your experience then with the sheep that kind of raised your curiosity about, wow, if the sheep can do this, maybe the goats can do it too? I never had seen a goat in my life. We were cowboys Yeah. from the Wild West. I'd never seen a goat, and I'd never had been around sheep. But I read in the literature how well goats eat weeds, and it very clearly showed a chart of the natural diet preferences. And I applied that knowledge and then added in my ability to handle animals. And I stumbled across some cashmere goats for sale. I didn't know anything about the breeds. And I looked at them, and they were so beautiful in different colors that I decided this is the tool that will make this idea work. And, yes, when I was on the sheep grazing project with my two sons, that's where I got the idea to offer to the American public an alternative to pesticides and machinery. There's a lot of places in the Rocky Mountains where you can't get machinery, or in cities as far as that goes, ditch banks, uh, rocky, where they put rock in, riprap rock, and all of those things where you cannot get machinery into. But goats are so nimble and agile, and they can go anywhere, and they eat all these things that no one else likes. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, working with your young boys, you're protecting them from the hazards of using chemicals. So I see this as a real win-win situation for anyone who's battling invasive species and has a land ethic, who gets the idea that we're all connected to a watershed and that how we think about how we not only raise our food but how we manage the land impacts our food quality, our water quality, and overall public health. And that's why I think what you're doing is really so remarkable. Now, Lenny, I have to tell you, so lately I've been having some conversations with people who are truly lamenting the fact that, say, the city parks and recs departments and that the state and national park service use chemicals routinely. They don't know an alternative. And you are working with a a particular type of goat that manages very well in high altitudes with harsh temperatures, very cold and dry. What about people who are living in parts of the country that are warmer and wetter? Do we have a goat option too? Oh, absolutely. There are 
lots of different breeds of goats coming from different parts of the world. And the goat has a different diet preference, but you would want to match the breed to where they came from evolution-wise. Mine come from the top of the Himalaya Mountains, and I'm working in the Rocky Mountains, so that's a match. So the South African boar goat is very heat-tolerant, so anyway, that would be suitable for those climates. So yeah, just pick the breed and... If you want to make cheese and have milk, then you would pick a dairy breed. If you want to have meat as your byproduct, then you would pick one of the many meat goats. I love my goats, but they're so valuable to me. And once they get this information and they've eaten poison oak in Northern California and wild marijuana in Southern Nebraska, all the thistles in the Rocky Mountains, I can't afford to sell them for a, you know, a product like meat or something. So my byproduct is cashmere, and they shed that once a year so you don't have to sacrifice the animal. But there's a breed for everybody, every situation, every temperature zone. Mm -hmm. And I want to let our listeners know that you have a fabulous website. It's www.goatseatweeds.com. And I think you've answered just about every question that might arise. You also offer workshops. You talk about what you do, and you also talk about how your goats are born on the land, they're born working, you have a wonderful relationship with them, and you don't slaughter them for meat. What happens when they've worked their 12-year prime? Where do they go? I let them work their days out with me, and when they get tired and just can't make it anymore, they pick a nice sunny spot on a side hill and lay down and die. Mm -hmm. And they're fed back to the land. Yeah. So I think for people who have not only a land ethic, but an animal ethic that drives them to seek an alternative, I think you could be a wonderful teacher. So I want to go back to your website for a moment because you've got a list of 10 reasons to manage weeds with goats. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about what makes these animals so unique and and how many goats are right for the amount of land that you have. I mean, I can't even imagine traveling around with 1,200 goats. So take me to, say, an urban park, and we want to find something besides the typical glyphosate or Roundup and Tordon chemicals that are used. Because of my old cowboying skills, I'm fearless when I go anywhere with these goats because I have wonderful border collies that have a great respect and great rapport with the herd. This whole business is built on respect. Respect for the land, respect from me to the goats, me to the border collies, them back to me, all of us for the land, all of us for the weather, and for the landowners of where we're working. It's all about respect. It's not how much voltage I get in that fence. It's respect, and it's it's a fun way to work. So I have been known to take 1,500 head of goats into downtown Denver, downtown Colorado Springs, downtown Cheyenne, Wyoming, we go to XL Energy Power Plant in the middle of Denver, and we run down the street with a police escort at the stoplight with one dog and one person with an orange flag, and we run right down the street and handle them in that kind of setting. I did, by the way, at one point have 2,500 goats. So I started with 100. I went up in three years to 2,500, and now I try to stay between one and 2,000. And right now we're closer to 1,000, and it fluctuates as drought and different things happen and different jobs happen. But 
Did I answer your question or did I get sidetracked? No, that's okay. So I'm trying to think to myself, okay, so I'm going to have a meeting, say, with some parks and rec people, and I'm trying to second-guess some of their questions like, well, how many goats do we need and how are we going to support or provide housing for these goats? You know, you can have a traveling goat herd service, but do any urban parks actually keep goats as a pet, a working animal that serves the whole city's needs? No, they don't, but they should. There should be resident herds everywhere, I believe. Yeah. And that's what I need to do at this point in time in my career. I've been doing this 20 years. I figured out how it works in almost any setting, in any season of work, and now I need to teach other people how to do it. But every city ought to have several resident herds. Like, again, I think Douglas County, Colorado needs 100,000 goats, and I've been saying that for 10 years. <laughs> and it still wouldn't cover all the wheat problems there. Wow. So there should be 10 of me, so, you know, me running a 1,000 head. And right now I pulled those into three different groups in the city of Denver. The big herd with all the mamas and brand-new babies is on uh, City of Westminster open space. Then the smaller herd of the big boys, I call those the big boys and they're my favorite, are over on a private job in El Dorado Springs right outside of Boulder, right under the Flatirons. It's very, very beautiful there. And then we pulled off 58 head and went to a backyard down in Lakewood near downtown Denver for thistles that, because of all the rain this year, are seven feet tall. If you're out in a relaxed setting, like say you own 10 acres out in the country and you have a weed problem, the rule of thumb for that is one goat per acre per the growing season. So 10 goats on 10 acres all year would ideally take care of that. How I work with this intense management of a concentrated, intense grazing, then we move fast. My goal is to get a million pounds per acre so, for instance, I want about 2,000 head on a quarter of an acre and move them every two hours, every one hour, every four hours. Depends on what's there and what the goal is of the vegetation. Huh. I have to ask you, Lonnie, why aren't we teaching this in agricultural schools? <laughs> I have been trying to get hooked up with a university for 10 years trying to teach it. I wanted to develop a curriculum to teach people about the, there's five main categories, the animals, which includes the goats and the dogs, and the wildlife, the coyotes, the wolves, the grizzly bears, people's dogs off leash, which is always our worst problem everywhere. Mm. So that's the animals. Then you have the plants. You have the weeds, the desired plants, all the different plant families, which season should I be working there if we want to work on a weed that's in the, Scrofulariaceae family or the mint family or the sunflower family, which season is best to be there. And then you want to know about the good plants so you can recommend seeding to people to get these better desired species in their ecosystem there. So plants, animals. The third one is living in a camper on the road, always on someone else's land. Must be clean and tidy and really no safety of how to live with propane and all those things and weather. Like right now, we're in tornado and lightning season. And then there's the PR. You've got to be able to explain to the public the different paradigm that we are in. We are not in a chemical paradigm. 
a, a chemical spraying paradigm is chasing symptoms that forever locks you into a drug addiction. I call them drugs. That's I right. I call herbicides drugs. So it locks you into a never-ending drug addiction, which means you're buying more chemicals all the time, which is exactly what's happened in the last 50 years. My system is I want to know the goal for the land, and I want to build a living, healthy, alive system where the plants are in the niches. The niches are filled with your desired species for whatever it is you're doing there. And this system functions. It's alive and it functions, and it all takes care of each other. The water is held in the system. The water is clean. The air is clean. The soil is clean. Hmm. Different paradigm. Absolutely. And then there's the contracting. You know, I'm on contract 365 days a year. So these five categories I just named, plants, animals, camper living, PR, and the contracts, that's what I want to teach and build a curriculum to teach professional herders. I'm a professional grazier, G-R-A-Z-I-E-R is the name of my profession. Well, let me just remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Lonnie Malmberg. And she is a goat herder, a professional gypsy goat herder, and I had the pleasure of meeting her at the 33rd Annual Beyond Pesticides Forum, where she told me all about her business, Euphoric, and the website. It's www.goatseatweeds.com to learn more about this. All right. Let's go back to your college days because I, I want to back up and say that I'm shocked that we are not teaching students about these ecological methods of controlling pests, whether they be weeds or insects and otherwise. And I want to go back to an article that was written about a presentation that you actually gave in Portland. And Beyond Pesticides is a wonderful organization, and they produce a publication called Pesticides and You. And in the summer 2014 edition, there is a review of a talk that you gave titled Ecological Land Management with Goats. And you talk a little bit about your experience at Colorado State University. And you talk about the research questions that are asked, but most importantly, the ones that aren't. So talk a little bit about how chemical companies influence the kind of research and research questions that are explored at our land-grant universities? Well, I was surprised to learn when I went to graduate school, I didn't know anything about research or how research was done. But indeed, the graduate students, from my viewpoint of what I learned, what I saw, the graduate student is given the question. And you're given the question, and it's your job to answer the question. It's not about your personal opinion. No one cares about that. It's not part of it. It's science. It's answer the question. So oftentimes when chemical companies fund the research, they give you the question, and the question isn't, well, what is the best thing to do for Canada thistle in my uh, meadow? That's not the question. When the chemical company gives you the question, it's how much should we spray? So the answer is, How much should we spray and should we spray once a year or twice a year? So you as a student, your job is to answer the question with your research design. And that is the only answer you get. You have five things you're testing against each other, and you will get one of those as the answer that answers the question of how much should we use for Canada thistle in a meadow. 
Well, when the landowner calls in for help managing their small acreage properties, they say, what is the best thing to do for Canada thistle in my meadow? And the worker in the office pulls off the research and says, well, says right here, the best thing to do is to spray Tordon twice a year, spring and fall, one quart to the acre. Well, you see how it gets misinterpreted down through the lines and people who are really trying to help the landowners, and they're just misinterpreting that, not knowing who funded the research and what the question was. That's how it gets misinterpreted and down to the to the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And I the can, ground level. And, and I can share a little bit about how that's applied in a nutrition environment in that I worked at a land-grant university in nutritional sciences extension, and I'm sure it's the same way with agriculture extension, where you're really held to providing evidence-based research answers. So you can't just come up with an alternative idea. It's like, I'm going to pull the research off the shelf. This is what the research shows us. But if we're not thinking outside that box, then we're really limiting ourselves and harming the planet. Yes. And it's also human health, too. Yeah. You know, would you get a job that you had passion for? I have a lot of passion for my job that I do. So would you get a job that you have passion for and get a good night's sleep and eat well? Or do you need a, a sleeping pill and an antidepressant drug and uh, something to pep you up and some Viagra to get through your day? So you can go either way. You can go a healthy way or you can take all the... Uh, pharmaceuticals and chemicals made that will try to mimic happiness. But you don't need that. You can do it a different way. Mm-hmm. So I want to also mention something else in this article. I had no idea that in 1999, President Bill Clinton signed an executive order on weeds. And he used war-like words. So he said, this is an all-out battle. It's a serious threat. It's a major economic and environmental damage. And so that just drives our dependence on chemicals rather than taking this alternative approach. Yes, and I'm going to say that the lobbyists for the chemical companies, I'm not going to blame that on Bill Clinton. It's the lobbyists for the chemical companies to get that legislation pushed through such that our country declared war on weeds, and war on weeds, you have to go kill them by law. And it's a war mentality. So that's how we got to where we are, and that's how people think. I was just on a property outside of Boulder the other day, and uh, she had a couple of biannual plants, some common mullein, diffuse knapweed, and musk thistle. And she hates them so much, she cannot stand looking at them in her pasture, I took goats up there and grazed last fall. I said, look at all the grass you have here. There used to be bare ground. Look at all the grass. But she could only see the mullen. And I said, these biannuals, their job in this system, because they've been in seven years of drought, and they had a devastating flood, the thousand-year flood that followed that, and now lots of rain. I said, Mother Nature is trying to build this system to survive. These biannual plants are like the prep chefs. The prep chefs come in the restaurant and chop all the vegetables, and then they leave and go home. Why are you trying to kill the prep chefs? They're just trying to build root structure, get their roots down, and cover the ground to be ready for the grasses to follow. You're trying to kill the prep chefs. But that's what this war mentality does, is trying to kill all the prep chefs in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. That's how I'd like to explain it. 
Yeah. Right. I know. A friend of mine just gave me a recent copy of Successful Farming. I think that was the right title. It was one of these common farming magazines. And there were many ads in there for chemicals. And the whole idea of man versus weeds, you know, man versus nature, rather than working with this ecological system. And I love the fact that you've got ecological system in your title of your business. Yes. Well, you know, force and control, brute force and control would be gigantic machinery and all the chemicals you could throw in there. You have a primordial vat of chemicals, and they are not good for people nor the environment, and you can look that up. I mean, it's there's a lot of information out there. Just go to beyondpesticides.com website and look at it yourself. They are not good for you. They They are meant to kill. The word C-I-D-E, herbicide, bactericide, homicide, suicide, that means to kill. And they do kill. They kill the microbes in the soil. There's all kinds of evidence that they're not good for human health nor the environment. So that's the force and destruction way to think that you're going to control this environment and kill all the weeds versus what I do is nurture the system, have this 100,000-pound herd of living energy come in and build the soil, recycle all of these biannual weeds or whatever they are, recycle those nutrients and get them back into the soil where they can sustain a healthy grassland system with legumes in there, fixing nitrogen, and all these plants filling the niches to build this living, functioning system. Mm -hmm. Now, on your website, goatseatweeds.com, you have a list of workshops, seminars, and classes Are you giving these all over the country, or are you primarily based at Twin Creeks Ranch? On the road. I'm on the road, and they come to me on site. I see. Okay. So it's kind of a custom, and different seasons, different jobs, different scenarios, different weeds, different everything, all different. Well, I think personally it's kind of hard to imagine what you're doing, And seeing one of your presentations and seeing the pictures that were provided in this Beyond Pesticides article really makes what you do come alive. For example, there's a picture of you moving goats through Denver, which, you know, is quite remarkable. And as well as goats standing on their hind legs eating these noxious weeds. So I want to make sure, though, that I give you a chance. We just have a couple of minutes left. Do you want to bring forth anything about your work that I may have not touched upon? Well, we, you know, you and I could go on for another two hours. I know. <laughs> but I think you've covered all the really important things. But I, I guess I do want to mention that this is potential career path for people now. Mm-hmm. We need to get a system of teaching and training. And I may start my own private school to teach people to be professional graziers. My phone, with all the rain in Colorado and the West, my phone, I get a 100 calls a day of people frantic to get help to have goats come in because they don't want to spray, thank God. But this year, with all the rain, the thistles are seven, eight feet tall. Wow. And But there's a need, and there's so much work that I turn down. There needs to be a lot of people doing this, and you may as well be a professional grazier and do it well, and be well paid. And it is a career path. Absolutely. 
It, listen, we've run out of time, and I knew our time would fly. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank you, Lonnie Malmberg, owner of Euphoric Geological Services, who uses goats in a controlled grazing environment to gradually and naturally remove weeds and return the land to a healthy natural ecosystem. The website is www.goatseatweeds.com. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much for being with me, Lonnie. Thank you, Melinda. It is my pleasure. 